The Guardian. He's an evolutionary biologist turned celebrity atheist. He's sold millions of books since he published The Selfish Gene in 1976, and his last big hit was The God Delusion, which came out in 2004. All told, Richard Dawkins gets people very hot under the collar. But after all that best-selling success, do people buy into his brand of anti-religious belief? Do they agree with him that religion amounts to a pernicious virus? To find out, I've come to St Paul's Cathedral to survey a random flock. He thinks religion is like a virus, it's like a dangerous virus. Is he right or wrong? Wrong. Oh, good question. It is a good question, isn't it? Strong word to use. It is. I would tend to agree with a lot ah, of that. Go on then, tell me why. Every war that was ever mentioned was religious founded. I was brought up as a Catholic, but I'm afraid I've got very little time for that as well now. You're thoroughly lapsed. I have pretty thoroughly lapsed, yes. <laughs> he's wrong, terribly wrong. I think he's right. I think he makes a lot of sense. Whereas you think the world would be a much better place if none of us were <laughs> thinking about someone upstairs, essentially. Essentially, yeah, if we thought more about each other rather than the potential for some hereafter. That would be great. I don't think religion is a dangerous virus, but I think it can be used as a dangerous virus by dangerous people. Religion in itself has a lot of good things about it. Such as? Believing there's a greater purpose, life after death, those kind of things that make us feel warm and fuzzy inside. What if it's a lot of rubbish? No one can prove that. Yeah, that's possible. <laughs> Once a religion catches on, it can definitely spread to a lot of people. There are people who, who argue both ways. There are people who would say that democracy is a good thing. There are, there are people who say that democracy is not necessarily the best system for everybody in the world. So I think Richard Dawkins, that's his particular view, but it's not the gospel by any, <laughs> by any means. We'll pass that on. Richard Dawkins, you've talked a lot in terms uh, of religion being a pernicious virus. When you talk in those sort of emotional, quite visceral terms, are you doing that to sort of raise hackles and therefore heighten the debate, do you think? I don't think I've talked a lot about it being pernicious, although I actually think it is pernicious. The point there is that it's infectious. It's something that grips the mind uh, in the same way as a virus, a conventional virus, grips the body. The, the analogy is not perfect, but I think it is very like a virus in that it takes control and it does so the better to propagate itself. It's a very, very simple instruction. It's like a computer program. Well, actually, a computer virus would be a better analogy. A computer virus more or less says nothing but copy me. And so when it gets onto another computer, copy me. It gets onto another computer, copy me. But there's a kind of computer virus which is called a Trojan horse, which actually uses the human mind, like, if you copy me, you'll get some, something wonderful. Those chain letters that, that one used to get that say, if you don't make six copies of this letter and send them to six friends, um, you'll die in hideous agony. And a few people, it doesn't take many people to believe it, for the thing to spread. They spread because people are gullible. But in choosing words like that, or on occasion I've read that you've said you despise organised religion, or religious belief, actually. They're very emotive terms for someone from an, academic, from an academic background. Are you doing that because you feel it's in the interests of the cause that you're pursuing, that debate is quite highly charged? I wonder if they're as emotive as you think they are. I suspect that because we've all been brought up with this sort of culture of respecting religion, that anything comparatively mild uh, sounds more outspoken than it really is. I mean, the, the do, you really, do you really despise religious belief? I despise 
people who believe something without evidence and then go out and take action which damages other people. Yes. So I despise people who, whose belief in religion is so firm and so unshakable that they actually think it justifies killing people. And right. Then, of course, okay. many people like But that. your average devout worshipper who's sitting in a pew of a Sunday morning, you're clearly oh, you don't of course despise not. them. No, of course I don't, no. What are your feelings towards them? Well, I mean, uh, they're harmless, especially Church of England. I mean, they're, they're harmless. I don't have strong feelings one way or the other. No, no, of course I don't despise them. Up until the age of, uh, it's unclear when sort of religious beliefs started to slip away in your own case, but you've said before, about the age of nine, you began to have doubts. Do you recall within yourself what some religious belief on your own part actually felt like? What the mindset was? Oh, yes. I mean, at the age of about 13, I was confirmed into the Church of England. And I definitely remember praying and, and hoping for sort of visions and angels to appear and that sort of thing. Uh, yes, I, I definitely recall that. I remember being, con being prepared for confirmation by the vicar and believing all that stuff. Uh, it didn't last long. What was your notion of God? Well, I mean, it wasn't an old man with a beard, which is the standard cliche that people like me are, are accused of. It was nothing like that. Um, it was a sort of private communicator who communicated with me and I communicated with him. When you began to feel doubts about all that, was that uh, at the same time as you felt what, to use a cliche, I might think of as the scientific impulse stirring? In other words, was moving away from one part of the process of moving towards another? Yeah, I mean, I put it in two stages. You mentioned that I started to have doubts at the age of nine, and what, what that was about, that was long before I got confirmed, what that was about was the realisation, which I think my mother brought to my attention, that there are lots of different religions and they couldn't all be right. And it was, I mean, I, I was very keenly aware that it was an arbitrary accident of birth that I happened to be brought up in a Christian country. But I somehow seemed to have forgotten that a bit later when I got confirmed. And then about two years after that, at the age of about 15 or 16, then it was indeed a scientific understanding that drew me away from religious superstition, yes. Tell me about what attracted you at the level of being a schoolboy, about science and the the pursuit of science and the scientific method and all of that, if you remember. Whereas, I mean, I, I wasn't a very good science student, I'm afraid. I wasn't much good at anything, actually. I was very inspired by the power of Darwinian evolution to explain everything about life. You became, uh, reasonably quickly, an evolutionary biologist. Did you have a plan B? Not really. Uh, I, I mean... I didn't really have, when I first went to Oxford, much hope of being an academic, having an academic career. And the possibility of that started to arise during my time at Oxford, when I really sort of became in love with academic zoology. And so I kind of moved on to each stage as it came. I didn't really have a plan B, no. Another thing that happened in the course of uh, your life as an academic was the arrival on the scene of postmodernism. Now, inevitably, anything I say about postmodernism here will be a little crude. But nonetheless, one of the central impulses of postmodernism was to dispute the idea that one could talk about a single unifying truth or rationality being the single governing factor by which one should judge things. And we moved on into a world or that we were tried to 
be pushed into a world in which there were several or you know potentially infinite numbers of locations of truth and so on and the idea that rationality and truth were single entities almost was disputed which you didn't take kindly to at all well uh, there, there no doubt are certain fields in which truth is relative and uh, one needs to, to take culture into account and so on. But I'm not that interested in that sort of truth. I'm interested in the sort of truth that says um, the Earth orbits the sun. Uh, day and night is caused by the fact that the Earth spins on its axis. I mean, those are just true. And anybody who says they're not true is, to- is talking nonsense. Those are facts. Darwinian evolution is a fact. Those are the kinds of facts I'm interested in. If people want to mess around talking about truth being relative, they are welcome. I won't waste my time. But you you apply those criteria to religious belief, don't you? Yes. Exactly the same. Yes. And in doing that, what do you think of the argument that that is very, very similar to the kind of approach to belief systems taken by... Uh, people whose certainty about truth and rationality had absolutely hideous consequences. So in other words, the reason that the Stalinists in the Soviet Union uh, wanted to get rid of religion and despised it and so on was because they had a very hardened idea of rationality and truth founded in the Enlightenment, which Karl Marx fitted neatly into and then Lenin took forward and so on, which it could be argued is dangerously similar to where you're coming from. What do you make of that argument? Stalin's Russia uh, adopted... Lysenko bio, Lysenkoist biology, which was utter nonsense. This was the importation of political ideas into science, flying in the face of scientific facts. Uh, so don't let's talk about Stalin as being enlightened by, by science. Stalin was the absolute opposite. No, but Marxism has within it that notion that truth and rationality are absolutes, which we can, we can talk in concrete terms about. Uh, there are certain absolute truths in the, by which I'm talking about scientific truths. Um, there are not absolute truths about human society. I'm not, I'm not talking about that, Marx was. But do you think you blur that distinction a little um, by talking about religion as much as you do? Not really, because I think that there are certain very interesting propositions of religion, uh, such as that the universe was created by a pre-existing intelligence, which I, which I take to be a scientific claim. It may be a very difficult scientific claim to verify or falsify, but it is a scientific claim. The universe would be a very different kind of universe if it had a creative intelligence at its root than if it simply grew by intelligible processes of science. So I do regard that as a scientific point. Uh, I don't regard um, some of the things that Marx would have said about economics or politics as in that category, and I don't have an opinion about that, and I don't think I would want to use the word truth uh, in the same scientifically rigorous sense about those sorts of economic and political claims as I would about, say, the origin of the universe um, or the origin of life or the evolution of life. What about those Christians, and there are millions of them, I mean, I'll talk about Christianity because it's the religion with which I'm the most familiar, who don't have necessarily that hardened belief in creationism, for example, uh, for whom uh, a belief in God is less devout and less hardened than in other branches of Christianity and other religions. I mean, what? how do you take your argument to them? Because well, when I read your work on religion, I think, well, yeah, that clearly applies to particularly pious Catholics or uh, Islamic fundamentalists. But if I were to walk in an Anglican church after the service and everyone was having tea and biscuits with the vicar, and, you know, there is that cliche about a great deal of, of Anglicans effectively being atheists anyway, yeah. what do you say to them? Well, um, you're, you're right, of course, that, that Christianity covers a great spectrum. I mean, you said... 
um, I mean, fundamentalist Catholics, more like fundamentalist Protestants, actually, would, would be more likely to, to believe the world is only 6,000 years old. Um, to the extent that a religious person believes an obvious falsehood, like the world is only 6,000 years old, then I'm going to have an argument with them. Your um, tea-drinking vicar, who doesn't believe that and thinks that... It's um, a matter of biblical symbolism or yeah, that sort of poetic um, writing or whatever. I mean, of, of course, those people are very different, and, and I would have a very different kind of argument with them. I think I would want to press them on what actually they do believe. But also, maybe language. they believe in turning the other cheek and doing as you would be done by, and the family of man and all oh, those things. of course. I mean, those are, those are moral I mean, precepts. do you worry about throwing those sort of ethical babies out with the theistic bathwater? Uh, of course I would, but I don't think that they're very theistic beliefs. I mean, I think these are, these are moral beliefs that one can arrive at by uh, moral philosophic discussion, and people have. This is why you have... On occasion, in the past, describe yourself as a cultural Christian. I, I've described myself as a cultural, a cultural Anglican, I would say. Um, and I've also, um, I wrote an article called "Atheist for Jesus," I think it was. Um, and <laughs> Can I was, you explain what somebody, it is to be an atheist? Somebody for Jesus? gave me a T-shirt with "Atheist for Jesus." Well, the point was that Jesus was a great moral teacher, and I was suggesting that somebody as intelligent as Jesus would have been an atheist if he had known what we what we know today. Here's the thing. I am an agnostic. Uh, I have thought about uh, the tenets, certainly, of Christian belief. Uh, and as far as believing in God is concerned, sort of found them wanting, I've, or myself unable to be convinced. But I still think, this goes back to our conversation about absolute truth, that I can't possibly know whether God exists or not anymore. I mean, am I being sort of, uh, what's the word? Oh, you know, weak-willed, guilty of not having no, the courage no. of my convictions. No, I mean, I'm, I'm an agnostic too in that in that sense. Uh, because you can't prove a negative, you can't. But you prove. think eventually we will be able to prove? I doubt whether... it. I, d I doubt it. I mean, I think it's sort of. I, I'd prefer to. Well, let, let me. I or mean... that the, the 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 space for proof is shrinking. You certainly believe that, right? Well, the space for for positive demonstration is is shrinking, and there and there is no positive evidence for any kind of supernatural entity. We've all got to be agnostic about anything that somebody could imagine, because you can't actually disprove it. Let, let me back back up a bit. In The God Delusion, I made a seven-point scale. One was total conviction that there is a God, and seven is total conviction that there isn't. And I put myself as a six. Okay, so that's kind of agnostic, but veering towards towards atheist. And I would be a six with respect to fairies and, and, and pixies and, and werewolves and th things like that. But there are people who will say, because they're agnostic, that puts them absolutely right in the middle. The probability of there being a God and there not being a God is exactly 50-50. And that, I think, is the wrong sort of agnostic to be, because I think you can sort of put a probability figure on it. What if I'm a five? Well, if you're a five, that means that you are pretty uncertain, but you're slightly, you're slightly moving towards being atheist. And if you're a three, um, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're agnostic, but it seems to me reasonable to put yourself on a scale of that, of that sort. And I've I put myself as as a six in the God delusion. Here we are on this little island off northern Europe, in which uh, organised religion uh, has never been less observed in this country's history. The same applies to large swathes, if not the majority of the European continent. I mean, religion is, it could be argued, is on the back foot in this part of the world. Why then are you so exercised about it? Well, mainly because of America, um, which is definitely not on the back foot. I mean, something like 90% of the American population uh, believes firmly in usually the Christian God. And also, of course, the Islamic world, where 
again, religion is not on the back foot. So Europe looks like being a bit exceptional. And so if you look more widely than just the borders of Europe, then you do have to get a bit worried. Do you have worries about Europe as well? That there could be uh, a resurgence of religious belief? I don't, I don't think there'll be a resurgence of Christianity. There, there might be a, a surgence of Islam. What about the fact that religion, in terms of its institutional influence, persists? How much does that well, irritate you? Or it's weird that, that those countries that have sort of the trappings of theocracy remaining, like Britain, because we have uh, bishops in the House of Lords, and we have lots and lots of faith schools, and we have um, the Queen is the head of the Church of England. It's an odd thing that those countries, like Britain, like the Scandinavian countries, which have an established church, seem to be the least religious. And a country like America, which has written into its constitution the separation between church and state, a wall of separation, as, as Jefferson called it, um, is, is one of the most religious countries, in, the most religious country in the Western world. So there's an odd negative correlation with what you might naively expect. You have, I assume, taken the message of the God delusion, I suppose, on a book tour to what might be termed the Bible Belt in the States. You've been, as Richard Dawkins, one yes. of the world's most famous atheists. How was it? It was great. I mean, I've, I've done it several times now, uh, and I find that I get the warmest welcomes in the Bible Belt in America. Uh, you can probably work out why. I mean, uh, the reason, of course, is that, at least I presume the reason, is that the people who come to hear me in their thousands feel beleaguered. And so they, somebody like me comes in, flies in and gives a talk and they can go to a huge auditorium and, and they give me a standing ovation. They do the same with, with Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens. Um, they give us a standing ovation and they look around and they see each other. And they realise, I'm not alone. I thought I was. It's irony, though, isn't it? You're like missionaries back <laughs> in the day. <laughs> well, I wouldn't like to put it that way. <laughs> Your writing, The God Delusion is a good example, has a tremendous sense of urgency about it. Is that because you fear that looked at from a global perspective, religion is winning? I don't think religion is winning. No, definitely not. I don't feel that I'm, as it were, in a in a corner fighting an urgent crisis, if that's what you mean. There are people who are admirers of your work who do feel like that, though, particularly about Islam, for example. I mean, they feel that the, that the West is in a, a moment potentially of grave crisis and that there's not nearly enough vigilance about the rise of Islam and so on. I mean, do, you, do you feel that? I am very disturbed by some of the... by the, by the sheer influence of Islam, for example, in, in British schools and universities, uh, time after time, I hear stories of my colleagues trying to teach evolution getting heckled by Islamic students who quite openly say that if it's a choice between scientific evidence on the one hand and the Quran on the other, they'll go with the Quran. Well, that is deeply, deeply unscientific, anti-scientific, and that's what I want to fight. Politics is very reluctant to go anywhere near this. I mean, in terms of the solutions to some of what you're talking about, the only place we can look is to politics. The state has to act. Perhaps things have to be legislated for. Uh, and yet, I mean, there was a hell of a fuss when Ed Miliband recently said he was an atheist. Was there? Yeah, in this secular country, to actually say, well, I actually yeah. don't believe in God, yes. is perceived for a politician 
as being controversial. I mean, how uh, receptive an audience do you tend to find among politicians? Is, I, that, is that a world in which you've tried to exert some influence? Yeah, I'm slightly surprised to hear you say that. I mean, uh, I thought that that's certainly true in America. I mean, there are 535 members of the United States Congress, and only one of them, Congressman Pete Stark, has actually come out and said he's an atheist. Um, not even that. He said he's a non-believer, I think. Yeah. Well, 534 members of Congress, it cannot possibly be true that they're all religious. I mean, they say they are, and so and they, they say they are for good political reasons. Uh, they won't get elected if they, or, or they believe they won't get elected if they say they're non-believers. But statistically, it cannot be true. Um, I thought that wasn't true in Britain. I mean, among leading politicians... Yes. Blair was a self-professed Christian, well, so was, yes, so but, was Brown. But, I think David Cameron has been photographed going to church. I'm sure he has. Um, well. <laughs> and I, I, just, I just wonder, I mean, again, something that one can make a lot of noise about in the pages of a newspaper like The Guardian, uh, and you can turn up at fringe meetings at party conferences and bang on about it, but it never seems to gain any traction within mainstream politics. It's faith schools, for I think example. that's right. So I'm, just, yes. I'm wondering, are there politicians you have met who have proved receptive to your message? Well, I once had dinner with, uh, I won't mention the name, but a, oh, but please a, do. No, a, a Tory cabinet minister um, and his wife, and um, he let fall during dinner that, of course, he didn't believe in Christ Christianity, and his wife was absolutely shocked. She was, she was sort of, sort of you know, edging away. And, and but, 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 but we go to church every Sunday. And, and he said, well, yes, but you don't really believe it, do you? And I, I took his attitude to be, to be typical, that surely there, are, there can't be very many educated, intelligent people who actually believe it. I think there are some, I know. Um, but if it's true that they are supposed to pretend in order to get elected, as they undoubtedly are in America, I'm a bit surprised you think that that's true in Britain. I mean, Tony Blair, yes, he's a religious man, but I don't know whether you saw that interview of him by Jeremy Paxman where Jeremy Paxman made the rather sarcastic comment about, a question rather, do, do you pray with George Bush? And Tony Blair denied it was too eager to, de to deny it, as though, although it would have been a sure vote gainer in the United States to say you prayed, um, in Britain it was the reverse, and he was anxious to uh, dispel that that uh, impression. It, in, in the words of uh, um, Alistair Campbell, um, we don't do God. And Tony Blair notably, noticeably waited until he'd finished being Prime Minister before he, as it were, came out in a big way as, as doing God. So do you actually, are you telling me that Edmund Miliband is actually suffering from the fact no, that... No, but it was remarked on as if it was somehow a little bit surprising that a front-rank politician would say they were an atheist. And I suppose uh, the explanation for that is part of the same explanation for why we don't seem to be able to debate within mainstream politics uh, the existence and actually the promotion of faith schools. Yeah. Part of the same thing. Yes, I think then despite the fact we're a secular country, yes, yes. within mainstream politics, yeah. there's a sort of it goes back to what you said before. I think about not offending religious sensibilities. Yes. there's a sort of twitchiness about religion. I think that's still. True. Yeah, I think that is. And then true. I suppose my question, given the amount of energy you expend on this issue, how you how you aim to get over that? Because it does stand in the way yes. of society achieving the sort of shape that someone like you would like it to achieve. Yes, and my colleague Dan Dennett coined the phrase "belief in belief." Um, lots and lots of people 
are not religious themselves, but they've got a vague idea it's a good thing that other people are. It's very patronising and condescending, by the way. It's sort of the attitude, well, you and I, of course, are too intelligent to be religious, but the common people need it. Um, and there are a lot of people who actually think that. A lot of people think that we need religion in order to be moral. No evidence for that, whatever. I mean, absolutely none. So I think one important thing we've got to do is to prize apart religion from morality. And so I think that would be one major step we could, we could take. You don't need to send your child to a faith school in order to instill in that child a sense of morality, a sense of good citizenship. Where are you politically now in the context of 21st century Britain? I'm on the left, but not the extreme left. For the last few elections, I voted Liberal Democrat for the reason, really, that the member uh, for Oxford, the Liberal Democrat member for Oxford, was Evan Harris, who's the, who's the most um, secular, scientifically-minded member of Parliament, no longer, unfortunately, lost a seat at the last election. So I voted for him as an individual. That, so you're almost a single-issue voter in that sense? I mean, the fact that the Liberal Democrats have been in coalition with the Conservatives would be a second-order issue compared to the fact that Evan Harris was their candidate and is well uh, propagates I mean, the I, atheist we, cause we, very we, we are a representative democracy, and we do actually vote for our member of parliament. A lot of people don't realise that. A lot of people simply say, I vote Tory, I vote Labour, whatever it is. And they, they are, in effect, participating in a presidential election for a prime minister. And that's a, that is a rational thing to do, given, given our system of of how we run elections but but I actually am quite proud of voting for an individual member of parliament presented with three candidates who as far as you could tell had not made their views clear in the way that Evan Harris asked which party would you go for <laughs> um I nah, I mean I would have said Labour but I would never have voted for Tony Blair for example why not because of the war in Iraq and and his friendship with with George Bush could never forgive anybody for being friends of George Bush. In living in this on this island of Northern Europe, what do you find to celebrate about modern Britain? Given that you're somebody who's, chain, who's famed chiefly over the last few years for decrying something, for disputing something, what do you find inspiring about modern Britain? I'd like to think that if I have fame, it's not for disputing. I'd like to think it's for promoting evolution and the wonder of evolution it's um, hard i mean that's a little it's a little bit hard when one of your most celebrated books has the word delusion in the title that's yes it. i mean that's one book out of ten sure and, and um i mean my most famous book is probably the selfish it gene is. um which is which is a positive book however you ask me about what what is there to celebrate about about britain um i i've got a strong streak of nostalgia i mean i i you know i, lo I love um village cricket matches and, and things like that. I love the English countryside, the British countryside. I still feel a sort of nostalgic regard for the for the for the country. Um, it's kind of flickering. It's not it's not that not that vigorous a flicker, I'm afraid. Why not? Maybe I'm just getting old. Is that to say you feel less comfortable, perhaps, in modern Britain than you did 40 or 50 years ago? It sounds petty. I don't, I don't, I don't want to get into petty things. I mean, the, 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 these are trivia compared to the things we've been talking about before. Really? Yeah. You think? Yeah. Talking in terms of the sort of health of a society and what's going wrong and I know too right little it about it. I know too little about it. I, it's not my, su my subject. We live at quite an, in quite an interesting phase of our 
our national and international history? I suppose that's the reason I ask you those questions. Because you are, for good or ill, what some people would call a public intellectual. I don't feel like a public intellectual. <laughs> what do you feel like? I'm a biologist, a scientist. I care about what's true. I care about education. I care about um, what, what children are taught. Um, I care about what makes life worth living, which I think there is a lot to be said for trying to understand the truth of why you exist in order to enjoy ex existing itself. This comes back to something I'll ask you about in the, in the last question, really, that for whatever reason, even in a secular country like this, we have arrived at a point where there's a sort of latent belief within the popular consciousness that to be scientific is to somehow be sort of desiccated and dry and uh, to miss out on the magic and mystery of one's experiences and the, the world and so on. You dispute that, right? So Not only dispute it, I mean, it's just the exact opposite of the truth. Science is wonderful. Science is amazing. The, the fact that you could understand why you exist, who could not be turned on, who could not be excited by that, who would ever want to live in a world where you live your life, you go to work, you go to the office, whatever it is, you go to the football match, and this goes on year after year, and then you die. And you don't have any understanding of why you were there in the first place. That's desiccated, that's dry. What is not dry and desiccated is coming into the world, as it were, awakening in the, in the world, and awakening in the fullest sense of, of seeing the universe, seeing the stars, seeing down a microscope, seeing what's inside every single cell, seeing what's inside the brain, and marvelling at this wonderful gift of life that we have, albeit temporarily, marvelling at this gift of understanding why we exist and rejoicing in it for as long as we do exist. Richard Dawkins, thank you very much.